0: The sicker I became, the more I needed medical help. I couldn't avoid it. And it, it, it really feels like your humanity is, is off the table. You're suddenly everybody's problem. And they are very, very hostile about it. I mean, if, if a doctor can't figure you out, then you are the problem.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians, and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remedies counseling.com a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses and other life matters a note of caution some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests hello humanity I am Scott Simpson counselor by day podcast host by night patient advocate the rest of the time in this episode, I interview Jeff Wood, a man in his 30s from California. Jeff has one of the greatest Lazarus-like life stories you will ever hear. Jeff's experience is made even more remarkable by a healthcare system that denied he was even ill. Jeff was so sick and disabled he spent years bedbound, requiring care from his family while physicians told him he was not really sick and that he had psychological problems. But Jeff was very, very sick, and through his own tenacity and own research from his hospital bed, was able to determine the cause of his inability to be vertical, set up a meeting with a world-renowned neurosurgeon, get a diagnosis over his phone and a referral from that neurosurgeon to transfer Jeff to his hospital for surgery. But the current hospital, deeply ego invested in their psychological diagnosis, refused to transfer Jeff for the surgery, while they continued to verbally and psychologically abuse and torment him. I'm amazed by Jeff's journey to hell and back, but especially by his rational and grounded account of medical errors that can be traced back to when he was a toddler, and his determination to help other patients not have to endure the medical error and abuses he survived. So before we chat with Jeff, Remember, please go to iTunes to subscribe to Medical Error Interviews and leave a kind comment. If you'd like to support Medical Error Interviews and bring awareness to the ubiquitousness of Medical Error, you can support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron for $2 a month or a premium patron and get early access to video versions of most podcasts for $5 a month. You can become a patron or premium patron by going to Patreon slash Medical Error Interviews. If you are struggling with the effects of medical error and need an experienced counselor to help deal with the repercussions, you can book an online video chat appointment with me at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with the inspirational Jeff Wood. The only, there, there was a little clue early on, but but, but I could go to this later. I don't know if you just want me to talk or uh, edit it or... Uh, so is this something that happened in your childhood, this clue? Yes. Okay. And it's going to
0: blow people's minds, I assume, because it blew my mind. And it, Jen Brea has a similar um, story about this. There, there's just so much to say. I, I don't know what order to do it. Um, it turned out, like, and also not every kid is going to have the same sign that I had. And I don't want people to go, well, Jeff had leg pain when he was four and he ended up having a tethered cord, but that's Jeff. And I have no signs of that in my kid or in myself. In other words, I'm trying to sort of share information without oversharing details that people might get lost. In, but I don't want to leave anything oh it's important. Right. I understand. Yeah. It's hard for me to know
1: how much to say, but um at any rate my childhood was just uh, pretty standard. Okay. But in retrospect you had this particular thing happen in your childhood that you think may be indicative of what happened to you when you're an adult. I do. And it was a, what I now know was a tethered spinal cord. And what is Um, that? I've
0: sort of heard of that. Okay. It is basically, it's very related to CCI and that it often occurs with it. Basically the way my neurosurgeon explained it to me and the way I realized it from reading a lot of people's stories and, and reading some scientific literature is that in a, in a typical body, we have our spinal cord is actually free. So our spinal cord attaches to our brainstem, travels down our our vertebral column, and then it's not attached to anything at the bottom where when it's in our lumbar area, it's not attached. In my case, I was born with my spinal cord attached um, and I really didn't have any problems as a result and a lot of people don't some people with when their spinal cord is attached it's, it's called a tether cord um, it's called a congenital tethered cord when you're born with it and that's basically how it happens people are born with it um, and I was and I had no idea and I the only signs I had as a kid were leg and foot pain as a up until I was four I had leg pain foot pain um, and my mom took me to the doctor for it because I sometimes cry at night. When I was trying to sleep and I remember this. The doctor said that I was having anxiety and it was probably a psychosomatic problem. And so my mom bought me these dinosaur slippers and we did relaxation exercises and tried to work through the anxiety. Little did I know <laughs> that, you know, decades later, it would turn out that I actually had a physical problem that I was born with that probably caused all of this. And it was essentially an invisible congenital problem. One of the neurosurgeons, the the top tethered cord neurosurgeon probably in the world is in Rhode Island. Her name is Dr. Petra Klein. She doesn't correct CCI, but what she does do is tethered cord. She's the top tethered cord neurosurgeon and she sees a lot of patients of hers with tethered cord have CCI as well. Her theory is that a congenital tethered spinal cord over time pulls down, puts a lot of pressure on the cranio area. And if you have ligaments that are lax, it will make it even worse. And it, it's just this constant pressure and that at some point you're going to get CCI. And so Dr. Kling, that is her theory. It hasn't been tested. But I've spent a lot of time in the neurosurgery community of people with tethered cord and CCI, and I see this. I, I there was, those two conditions so often occur together. And um, you know, I, I had the halo in the surgery, and my ME went away. What happened after the halo in surgery? I became well, except I started getting that same foot pain that I had as a little kid. I started getting the same everything. It felt so familiar. And so I talked to my neurosurgeon and he said, okay, have a tethered cord, come on in, and I will fix your tethered cord. So I, I had a second surgery um, six months after my fusion for, to free my cord. And after it was free, all those symptoms went away. And I, and I had another, I, my thinking is if I had had the tethered cord surgery as a little kid, I might have never developed CCI, I've never developed ME. And I'm seeing this
1: over and over. So, a medical error when you were four years old. If it hadn't, if you had have been properly diagnosed as a four year old, you may not have had this near death experience and losing four or five years out of your life to severe illness. Yes. Yes. And yeah. Wow. Wow. So uh, it sounds like the remedy for. Tethered cord is surgery to untether the cord. Yes. Okay. Pretty standard, easy.
0: Well, it's neurosurgery, and there are two conditions where tethered cord occurs, really. The two main conditions are spina bifida, which I don't have, and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which I would have never thought I had.
1: So way. let's back up again to childhood. So growing up in California? Southern California. Southern yes. California, and other than up until when you were four, having the the foot and leg pain, which was a misdiagnosis. Uh, what was your childhood like, and what did you study when you went off to university? Um, I studied cognitive science at the University of California,
0: Irvine, um, and just childhood leading up to that point, I just active, like to read, like to hang out with people,
1: just. Um, pretty pretty happy pretty pretty standard okay and then why cognitive science what made what drew you to that major just really interested
0: in the human mind it, it seemed that a lot of a lot of reality seemed to be based on our our own filters and and so i thought okay it's just very interesting why do we have these filters How come two different people can look at the same situation and come up with completely different perspectives? And so I went into that in part because that was so interesting. Um, and, And then there's the whole factor of, okay, so we have multiple realities here. How do we determine which one is the most useful? How do we convince other people who have a completely different perspective to see things in our way or at least entertain you know, a a different perspective. How do we make ourselves open our minds? Sometimes, I mean, any one of us could have a hard time opening our mind, myself included, anybody, right, I mean, to something that seems so... that doesn't match our prior assumptions, it doesn't match anything we would have thought of until that very moment.
1: And how do we make ourselves ready for that moment? So, there you are, you did your undergrad Cognitive Science, your Master's in Cognitive Science? I was getting my
0: doctorate and actually I was working toward that when I just, in grad school I just realized as I was going through grad school that there, there was one, at first I had I was fine. It was my, my onset was initially, it would have been called mild ME where you're still able to go to work or school but you have to give up all your outside activities
1: just in order to function. That started happening to me in grad school. So, and Sorry. So you had, when was the initial viral onset? In grad school. Okay. And what it, year was that? Oh, 2012, Tw-
0: 2011 is when I, yes, it was 2011. It was the very end of 2011 when I had a fever of 102. And I thought, okay, I have the flu or a cold or probably the flu um and i ended up with a bad virus and um i just you know I, I did the normal resting when you have the flu just the normal flu activities and then i you know started going back to my classes after about a week or two and i just carried on and i, I realized i wasn't getting better the way i thought i would but i was slowly coming out of that flu like feeling it never fully went away at all. And it was as though suddenly I had been kneecapped. Like suddenly I had like maybe half the energy I used to have. Like when I would go to open a door, I would have to like put way more energy. When I'd go to walk upstairs, suddenly I'm getting tired. And this would never have tired me out before. Um, It was like, it was really kind of shocking. And I, I didn't know what to think of it. And I just kept thinking, well, this will go away. I'm just gonna push through this will go away why, why wouldn't it go away um but it didn't and in fact it, the more i pushed myself the worse i would become so i sort of had to learn how to pace without realizing i was pacing i i knew that okay i can't do I can't go to classes and then hang out with people anymore. So I just have to go to classes and stay home while everybody else goes out and socializes. Okay, I can do that. You know, I can't go to the gym anymore at all. When I try to lift weights, you know, I'm okay. But when I get home, a few hours later or the next day, I am plastered to my bed. So I had to give up all exercise. Um, And over time, I had to go just go very part-time in grad school just to be functional.
1: And finally, I became bedridden. I just kept pushing myself, and it did not work. So from the time of that viral onset at the end of 2011 until the time and you kept pushing until the time you ended up bedridden, what? how much time was that? Three years. Three years. I up, I, yes, I ended up bedridden in June of
0: 2014, June 26th. I cannot forget the date. That was when I just
1: I couldn't get up and do stuff. I just... And what was going on in your life at that time other than you're down to part-time school where yet you your parents are... Or... I
0: actually live with my uh, significant other. Um, so he and I... and I don't, He and I were living together and I, I was going to grad school and he has his own business and um, he knew that I was declining and he and I didn't understand exactly what was going on. Um, but then when I crashed, it was... Pretty dramatic for both of us.
1: How so for him? Yeah, I'm sorry. How so I, for him? How was it dramatic for him? Well, fortunately, he and I are still together. He's very loving, and he he didn't know because he had to suddenly
0: take care of me. He had to do everything. Like he, I couldn't go to my get groceries. I couldn't prepare my own meals. I couldn't clean anything. We had to just. I suddenly needed a wheelchair. So my mom came and helped us. Like she came to visit and my dad came too. And they just, they would cook for us. They installed a bedside refrigerator right by my bed so I could just open that and, and have access to food because my partner, he works during the day. And I and I couldn't get out of bed to even go to the kitchen and, and prepare my own meals. Um, and then I needed help bathing. It, uh, and there, there were some times when, I would get out of bed to say use the restroom and I would collapse onto the floor and I was kind of paralyzed with just a lack of energy and I would just lie there and he would come in when I would would yell he'd come in and he would have to physically pick me up I mean it it was just nothing we could have prepared for and we had no preparation we had no idea this was coming.
1: Uh, During this three years where you're gradually getting more disabled and ill and you're a science guy um, I would assume that you're you're doing the research. I was.
0: I was looking into a lot of different conditions and I would get tested for them and I wouldn't have them and it was very frustrating so I was going to endocrinologists. I was going to, my gosh, I went to several internists and nobody was able to figure out what was going on. My thyroid was fine. I didn't have any sort of gross abnormalities or even really very many subtle abnormalities to suggest anything. And a lot of times I would try to come up with a hypothesis of of what's going on because they would tell me that I was fine. So I would go home and know that I was not fine, and I would try to generate hypotheses. Sometimes i try to do that with them. I'd say, okay, they would say, you're fine, you don't have a thyroid problem, you don't have adrenal insufficiency, you don't have any sort of, you don't have HIV, you don't have pneumonia, you don't have, like they would just list all the things that were normal, and as if to say, you're healthy. And, and, and um, they would suggest maybe you have anxiety. Maybe you know maybe you need to take it easy. Maybe you're working too hard. And in fact, I knew that wasn't the case because I had constrained my entire life to be able to deal with school while still you know, being able to get up in the morning. I mean, I was not working hard. I was pushing myself to my limit. My limit kept shrinking. And so they would essentially imply the polite ones would essentially would imply that I was just depressed in a very polite way after ruling everything out. The not-so-polite ones accused me of malingering. They accused me of, they're like, what do you want? Do you want me to put you on disability, or do you want narcotics because I'm not gonna do either. Like, they would just immediately um, assume I was trying to take advantage of some sort of medical intervention. Some of them acted like I was seeking attention. Um, and I really couldn't find what was likely wrong with me. I think I had had heard of chronic fatigue syndrome but I thought it was bogus. I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. Chronic fatigue syndrome, yeah, but what is that? That, I didn't even consider it as an actual illness. I had no awareness of it until after my crash in 2014 and that's when I really started looking into ME um, because especially how I would crash after exerting myself. I, I was really starting to look into why just, why am I losing all my energy after being active? What is going on? And, and that was what led me to ME. And Things Rising helped me. And, and Dr. Kaufman. I knew, to, I knew to seek out Dr. Kaufman
2: once I realized I had ME. I'm like, okay, I have ME. All these doctors missed it.
0: And I can see why now. Because it's not considered essentially valid in and of itself. I didn't even consider it as a possibility until after I became better
1: and so what was that feeling like when you realized that it was ME? I know you described it in your, on your website.
0: I was so mixed. I was so relieved because now I have an illness that matches everything I've been experiencing. This is incredibly real. Millions of people have this. This is an established thing. On the other hand, There is no known cure. It is usually lifelong. That was like, I I felt like it was kind of a life sentence or even perhaps a death sentence. I, 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 it was overwhelmingly sad for me
1: to realize this is what I had. But you say at the same time with sort of the excitement relief of finally figuring out what it was. Yes, it was a very
0: blended experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so now you've figured out and you've also figured out you need to see Dr. Kaufman and remind folks who who are listening or who don't know who Dr. Kaufman and where he is. Yes, Dr. Kaufman is a board-certified internal
0: medicine specialist. He is in Mountain View, California, which is in Northern California, Um, and he, um, for decades he practiced in New York working with HIV patients so he came from a time when people with HIV were convert, serial converting to AIDS and, and dying. And he, and he liked the puzzle. He's very humane. Um, you know he, he has spent a good portion of his career working with populations that are not treated seriously, populations that are discriminated against. And so he like, you know, once, the treatment for HIV became more standard and and people were living more, living living with HIV, he um, moved on to a puzzle, like a new puzzle. Like once, okay, we we solved this puzzle. Let's move on to a new puzzle. Um, he, He seems to really like the challenge of illnesses that aren't fully understood. And he's very much a compassionate doctor who understands that his patients might be experiencing
1: extra negative treatment in the medical system. Wow, so he is a rare gem to find. Oh, yes, yes. Not only for uh, his history and his knowledge and his skills, but also for his bedside manner. Yes, all of the above. I was amazed to find him. Is this the Dr. Kaufman that works in the same office with Dr. Cheta? Yes. Okay, okay. And then they're associated with the Open Medicine Foundation and Dr. Davis on some level? At some level, yes. Yeah, Okay. Okay, so you find Dr. Kaufman, you manage to get an appointment with him, and you go in to see him, and what happens? It was unlike the other
0: experiences when I would go to a doctor. I went in to see him, and he's warm, which sometimes you'll find, um, but he was very, very curious in a way that a lot of doctors aren't necessarily. He wanted to, before I showed up, he wanted me to have a, a chronological history of my illness and sent to him before my appointment. So I show up, and he had clearly read my chronology of symptoms, and he asked me to retell it again. He said, because sometimes you learn more things when a patient retells the story. Mm -hmm. So he was so prepared, um, and very curious, and he was a very good listener. And I told him my story, and about five to ten minutes into my appointment, I had to lie down. I we were I was in a wheelchair. No, I, I was not in a wheelchair for that particular appointment. I forced myself to walk, but I had to lie down. Because um, you forced yourself to walk. <laughs> I did. I, I I hadn't become used to using a wheelchair yet, and I and I was embarrassed to have to use it at first. Over time, it was It allowed me to be free. It allowed me to go out of my house. But I I had a lot of stigma at first, and I would force myself to not use it at first. And that was one of the times when, okay. So I forced myself to walk, and then I had to lie down five to 10 minutes into that appointment. And Dr. Kaufman didn't even flinch. He didn't question. A lot of doctors that I had seen would have gone, excuse me, and, and they might have accommodated me, but they would have been, skeptical and weirded out. He was, he knew what this was. He had seen this so many times that he just he said, of course. And so we went to a room where you could lie down and we talked from there. And he um, he tested my, he had me lie down, took my blood pressure and heart rate, then had me sit up, took my blood pressure and heart rate, then had me stand, and that's when he diagnosed me with POTS.
1: Um, and, and POTS is pretty severe. Uh, for people who don't know, what is POTS? It's an acronym. Oh yes, it's an acronym: Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome.
0: Oh. And what that means is when you change a change in posture, your heart rate and your basically your well, I don't your autonomic nervous system can't regulate your heart rate the way it is supposed to. So if you lie down, let's say you have a heart rate of seven, then when you sit up, your heart rate goes to about maybe ninety. And if you, when you stand, it goes to about 100. And generally, to diagnose POTS, you need about 30 point beats per minute increase going from lying down to standing. And so that is the typical way of diagnosing POTS.
1: Uh, so he figured out you had POTS, which you probably already had figured out you had? I had highly suspected it, and this was just the confirmation. Um, he drew so much blood
0: on that visit, and like major turkey basters amounts of blood because he's so curious and I came back two weeks later from my first follow-up appointment and and that's when I learned that I had actual abnormalities in my blood work and I mean at that point I had spent three years trying to figure out what could possibly be abnormal in my blood. Um, Nothing had ever been abnormal Um, but I had Um, Epstein-Barr, IgM titers were abnormal. And uh, what what are IgM? Okay, IgM are antibodies to a virus, and IgM tend to be positive within six months of having an acute infection. And then what happens with our immune system is over time, in a healthy immune system, the IgM antibodies will decrease, and you'll be left with IgG antibodies. So when a doctor measures your IgM and your IgG antibodies to any virus, um, they can have a pretty good idea of how recently you were infected and how well your immune system might be dealing with that infection. And my blood work suggested that I had recently been infected with Epstein-Barr. And that was interesting because my IgM Epstein-Barr viral tigers never went down. Over the years that I saw Dr. Kaufman, they remain positive, and that is, that is generally not normal. And what Dr. Kaufman explained to me at the time, in like 2015, 2016, was that he sees this a lot, pretty, pretty often, in people with ME. After I got my halo, for the first time, my IgM titers to Epstein-Barr became negative.
1: How does that happen? What's the I, physiology? Yeah, right. I, how?
0: How? If it's viral, how does a structural problem relate to viral factors? How? There apparently is research on this, and I found it. This is how. This is what I learned. Okay, when you have brainstem compression, your autonomic nervous system is disrupted because your brainstem literally helps regulate your autonomic nervous system, and that's your heart rate, your blood pressure, pots my POTS went away without brainstem compression. And now that's pretty logical. That's easy to, pretty easy to understand why that would go away. But then it makes you wonder, but why the Epstein-Barr IgM titers, why? Well, it turns out that our autonomic nervous system works in tandem with our immune system. It's not like our immune system operates you know, independently of our autonomic nervous system. It is not a leap to think, if you've got autonomic nervous system dysfunction, you would have all these different downstream effects on your immune system, and it's even you would have these downstream effects, through research this has been shown, on energy metabolism. So the Krebs cycle, and I know that Dr. Ron Davis at Stanford has found abnormalities in energy metabolism in people with me. I found a scientific paper about how our autonomic nervous system helps regulate our energy metabolism. I could provide those papers. So to my mind at this point, it looks like if you've got a structural problem with your brainstem, it could have immune effects, it will give you POTS, and it can impair your energy metabolism. And all of those three things, POTS,
1: immune problems, and energy metabolism, are found in people with ME. And the endocrine system, like I I have and other folks have endocrine problems, is that also a result of the autonomic system? I would have to look into it further, but I
0: would be shocked if it weren't. Because there's such an interplay with our autonomic nervous system in regulating so many different bodily functions that it, it almost seems like how could there not be?
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah, there it's we have complex bodies and there are still only recently discovered body parts, so Yes. <laughs> this is amazing. Yes. Uh, okay, so now you're uh, you're back getting your follow-up results with Dr. Kaufman after a two-week break and you find out you have uh, active Epstein Barr virus going on. Yes. I did. And
0: That was interesting. He also found that my natural killer cell function was very low. He said that that tends to be a finding that he sees a lot. And uh, why is that significant? I don't know. At the time, it was considered significant, that was late 2014. I don't know that it is still considered significant. I mean, it could be that if you have any sort of physical problem, you will have low natural killer cell function. It it might not be specific to ME, but he did find it. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so those two things. What else did he discover? He discovered that I have very low levels of vasopressin, and I, at the time I was having very constant urination. Um, I don't. Uh, I, he said that a lot of people with ME he sees that they urinate 10, 15, 20 times a day. Yes, and I definitely had that. That is also a symptom of tethered cord, a tethered spinal cord. That is one of the primary symptoms, is what's called a neurogenic bladder, where you urinate all throughout the day because, and it is, it is actually a neurological problem with, this, with the tethered spinal cord. I had no idea of this at the time.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> okay, so I uh, found out that uh, neurogenic bladder thing. Yeah, the neurogenic bladder thing was there, but but the way Dr. Pogman found it,
0: he, because we, we, we were looking at it through the lens of blood work, and, and he found that uh, vasopressin, which is a hormone that we release to control our urination, was I basically had none of it. So that is the lens through which we were looking at my constant, frequent, maybe not constant but frequent urination symptoms. Um, But now, in retrospect, now, now that I have spent time in the neurosurgery community and had two neurosurgeries myself, when I look back on that finding and my symptoms of frequent urination throughout the day and night, I see tethered cord. And I think what we saw in my blood work was a logical way for my body to try to deal with my tethered spinal cord. When you have a structural problem your body will try to make up for it with its own hormonal system it will try to maintain you and you can get from what i have seen and the way i see this is your body tries to create a new balance they might call it a homeostasis where you become stuck and in my case and in the cases of it looks like other people with me it was a structural problem that sets off this cascade of symptoms, including
1: perhaps some of what we're seeing in blood work at this point. Incredible. Okay, so the epstein bar, did you start on antivirals for that? I did. We started me out on Famvir,
0: and we eventually went to Valsai. and and those are two standard, pretty standard antivirals for Epstein-Barr infection. I, at the time we also, at the same time I started Fampir, I started on propranolol, which is a beta blocker for my POTS, and Florinef, which is a middle cortical, glucocorticoid, which basically to increase blood volume. And I got some symptomatic relief in my POTS. Uh, but what I found was when I would get some symptomatic relief, I would be thrilled and I would go become a bit more active, and oh, I would crash. So it seemed that it was kind of like applying a Band-Aid to a wound that won't heal. So you apply a Band-Aid, and it looks like your wound is taken care of, so then you get out of bed and start using your arm, where you've got this gash in this Band-Aid, and it just gushes. So I could put on the Band-Aids, but I couldn't, it didn't really increase my ability to do much unless I really, really paced myself. So I didn't feel like I was getting better. I felt like I was able to better control whatever was going on, but it still was out of control. I
1: couldn't control it with anything other than pacing. I could only make it a little bit better. And pacing, that's a term not all folks are familiar with. What is pacing? Pacing is the idea where you kind of budget your energy.
0: So as an example from my own life, if I when I had a meeting, if if I would get up in the morning and take a shower and then go make breakfast, I would end up flat on my back for the rest of the day. But if I woke up and just made breakfast but put off the shower for a few days, then I could recover from making breakfast over the next three days, then I would shower and then I would take three days to recover from a shower. So basically, you don't want to overload your body with activity, because every activity you do, you will pay for in a crash. So when you pace, you just, it's like a slow and steady, you want to be
1: the tortoise rather than the hare.
0: You want to go very slow, very steady, and pace yourself.
1: And for folks who've never had a chronic illness, and especially for folks who've never had ME, and uh, I'll say that ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, but we're calling it ME because it's much easier to say. Um, they may not uh, be familiar with what a crash is from the exertion, and i use used that italicized, the exertion of a shower or the exertion of making breakfast. Yes, okay. That, that is, uh, I, I could see why it would be very hard to
0: understand if you haven't lived it or seen somebody live it. Basically, when you're, when you're not ill, a shower is not really exertion. A shower is just an activity. Um, when you have the heave, a shower might be, it would have the same impact on your level of exhaustion as maybe running a marathon if you're completely untrained and forced to. It is as though just a shower would leave me flat in bed for days, as though I had tried to run a marathon and lifted you know, I don't know, 40 pound weights while I was doing it. I mean, it, it, is, it is hard to imagine if you haven't lived it. I, I never would have been able to understand it unless somebody really spelled it out for me until I lived it. And then when you live it, or if you watch somebody live it, you can basically see, you, you know, you see a person who might look healthy or they might look a little bit like they're lacking energy. Okay, so that person, you know, sits up, makes dinner, you can see them fade. You can see their eyes start to go dead. You can see their body language start to slump. They might, they need to go light down. And the more severe your ME is, the less you can do before hitting that crash. Crash is like, maybe if you're not ill, a crash would happen if you stayed up, didn't sleep for three days, cramming for final exams and ran, you know, three miles every single day that you did that, you are going to hit a point where you are exhausted and you cannot get out of bed and you feel ill. That is in me. And that can happen from taking a shower. And that is what happened to me. I, You know, there are different levels of severity than me. Um, when you are pretty severe, a shower can wipe you out for a week or two, just one shower. And at my most severe, I couldn't even shower on my own. I, I had to have people do the labor of bathing me and then they would have to they have to wheel me into the bathroom in my wheelchair because I could not walk from my bed to our shower and then they would have to bathe me while I just sat there on a shower chair. They would then they would have to wheel me right back to bed because I was so my enemy was so severe that I would crash just from that. If I had walked myself and bathed myself, I might be flat in bed for months and unable to speak, so it's all, you know, there are different levels of severity, but at the, the more severe levels, exertion might be speaking, saying a few sentences can, can crash you, and, and that happened to me sometimes, there were times when I couldn't speak, um, I would have to write, and then there were times when writing was literally too much exertion, it was too much activity for what my body could handle, and I would crash if I tried to write, um, and exertion, um, crashing can also happen even if you don't exert yourself, but just from being exposed to light and sound. If you're severe enough, that can crash you. And that happened to me at times. We had to install just a very low-wattage lamp by my bedside um, because I couldn't tolerate overhead light. I, I, I couldn't tolerate having the curtains open. And any normal amount of light felt physically painful, and it would crash me for days so that was at my worst Um, dark room earplugs being wheeled to the shower having other people bathe me wheeling me back to bed and then only being showered maybe every two weeks because even that was hard on my body and it would cause me to crash
1: wow wow so, you're, you couldn't really have a much lower quality of life at that point. I, I would agree. I, it was
0: very severe. And I, I have heard of others that are more so than even I was, but that is a very, the level I was is a very, very severe level.
1: And the quality of life is essentially just not there at all. And so, during this period of time, up until the doctor. When you got to see Dr. Kaufman, when all of these physicians are telling you that there's nothing wrong with you, that you're, quote, perfectly healthy. Oh, I need to back up a bit. I, I, I understand your question. I didn't
0: become that severe until 2015, okay. 2014. So I was already seeing Dr. Kaufman. But by, by the time I saw Dr. Kaufman, I had been bedridden, but I could still shower on my own. I could still... I was probably what you might call moderate to severe ME when I saw Dr. Kaufman. I could talk usually, but at my most severe was 2015, after I had already seen Dr. Kaufman. We had been treating my POTS, and we had me on antivirals. And the reason I became as severe as I became was because I had some benefit from the treatments for POTS, and I had pushed myself, and that is what caused me to just crash. But in the years before that crash, when I was at a more mild level, doctors would tell me, before Dr. Kaufman, doctors would tell me, nothing was wrong with me, I was perfectly healthy because they couldn't see how impaired I was. Once I became extraordinarily severe in 2015, I looked ill. by that point. I was kind of emaciated. I was extremely pale, I looked. My, my mother said I looked like somebody who was dying of cancer, um, and that's probably how I looked. But I didn't look that way. I, I was still quite ill and looking healthy for a long time with ME un, until I became as severe as I became. So a lot of times people with mild to moderate ME can look perfectly healthy, um, and that's part of the problem why they're not taken seriously and it wasn't until i had to be bathed by other people that i actually looked ill um so if i had looked as ill as i was earlier on i wouldn't have been dismissed in the way that i wasn't and this happens to millions of people this is the norm this is not like my story is some outlier in terms of how i was treated by doctors this is the norm
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that, and you know that. And, <laughs> and people with chronic illnesses, especially complex chronic illnesses, probably know that from their own experience. Um, but at that period of time, before you saw Dr. Kaufman, and you were just seeing these other physicians, and they were saying that you were okay, how was your family and your partner, how were they sort of reconciling the Jeff they knew with the Jeff they saw now with the information these multiple physicians are giving him. My partner
0: knew that I was ill because he he just knew me. My parents knew that I thought something was very wrong. They weren't sure what it could have been, and I don't know if they were... I don't think they grasped how severe it was, and that was in part because they weren't living with me. So... You know, they heard that I, you know, I would tell my family, yeah, I don't feel well, I'm having a hard time doing things. Doctors are saying I'm fine. And I think when you hear that and you don't have any context for chronic illness, you tend to think, okay, maybe this person is making a bit of a big deal out of things. Maybe it's not as bad as, it, as this person is making it sound. You hope it's not as bad as they're making it seem. But when my partner was living with me day in, day out, he really understood that I was declining in a way that I couldn't convey to people over the phone me. Um, but I do know that sometimes people will live with a partner and the partner will take the doctor's word for it. Even if the partner is watching the decline, sometimes the partner will take the doctor's word for it over, over the sick persons.
1: And in cases like that, I was fortunate that that didn't happen to me. Um, I, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, so you had the support of your family and your partner. And then as you became bedridden and you became more severe, how was your mental health? It was was not easy.
0: It, It was, I had to fight to want to keep going. I had to talk myself into wanting to live and figure out what was wrong. I knew by the point... By the time I was diagnosed with ME, I knew the odds that I would get better were very small. And I still wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. And I knew that science progresses, medicine progresses. There might be hope, but I also knew the odds. And I was going to try to defy the odds And I had to psych myself up into trying to defy the odds because it is so hard to live like that.
1: And, yeah. What would you say to yourself? Because that's such an unusual place for anyone to be in. I would try to, when, when I would start to feel overwhelmed
0: with the hopelessness and the exhaustion, I would say, okay, let's focus on my cat. He's right here with me. Let's focus on my partner. He's coming home tonight, and he will come. Hold my hand. I I would have to really narrow my focus on good things in order to not be overwhelmed with grief, and and that would help. Having cats
1: really helped. Having a partner really helped. Um, The simple things like that. How much depression do you think you experienced? I... I don't know
0: if it was depression. It was situational depression. If it was, it was profound grief and sadness, based on an actual event that would produce that type of grief and sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I was depressed because. I wanted to do things. I wanted to live. I wanted to have fun, but I couldn't. And, and that's what caused the sadness and the grief was that I couldn't do what I wanted. It wasn't the type of depression where you feel hopeless and you don't want to do anything because of your neurochemistry. This was more of a, okay, I'm in a very hard situation. I have no. Problem. And I think it, that ME is in many ways very very different from depression. Um, depression is a very real illness, and there's a lot of stigma around depression, but my, from what I've learned, people who are depressed, if they hear, for example, that their friend is having a birthday party, they have to will themselves to go. They don't want to go. They, they want to maybe curl up in a ball, and there's not the motivation or the zest. With me, at least in my own experience, my friend was having a birthday party, and I wanted to go So badly, but I could not. And it was a very, it's very distinct from depression, but it looks the same. And, you know, both depression and ME involve feelings of helplessness and hopelessness, but they are actually very different. And um, both conditions should be taken very seriously, and they can occur together. I just think that in my own case, I didn't have depression. Uh, as as depression is actually defined.
1: Uh, so now you've seen Dr. Kaufman, you've got these diagnoses, um, you start on the antivirals, you feel a little bit better, you overdo it, and you pay back harder, and now you're even more sick. Absolutely, yes. And so a lot of <clears throat> bedridden, and then when's the next sort of milestone? Okay, once I became very severe to where I couldn't always speak and to where I had to
0: be wheeled and bathed, um, I realized that the only way I would get it all better would be if I would just lie there all day long and not move and not talk and do nothing. And a few days of doing that, I would feel better in a very relative sense. I would be able to think better I would be able to move my arm and grab water and drink without crashing. So, it became very clear to me that pacing was going to have to be taken to a very extreme level, like extreme pacing, and that that is how I could crawl my way slowly, slowly out of that extreme crash. Figuratively. Yes, figuratively. <laughs> yeah, you're taking gravity off of here. And, and looking back... Um, I think that with what I know now about the cervical junction, I think what I, what lying there, lying down, being perfectly still, was not straining, was, was taking the most amount of pressure off my of brainstem. Being upright, the brainstem has a lot more, gravity, gra- yeah, just for simple gravity, um, is being compressed and it's, it's being distorted mechanically. I never would have thought of it that way at the time. I, I thought that I was dealing with my immune system, or you know, I, I had all these ideas about what it might have been, been at the time. But what I do know for a fact is, is that extreme pacing helped. And my interpretation of extreme pacing now is that it causes the least amount of mechanical problem, and it allows your body to heal from all the constant mechanical brainstem assault of engaging in activity.
1: Okay. So, during this period where you're very, very ill, uh, one day your neck hurt. Yes. Uh,
0: I basically, and there's a little bit more to the story I that I didn't put in the website because it was already so long, um, I started to wonder if root canals that I had had were contributing to Miami. So, and I had these root canals years earlier. I decided to get the root canals removed, to just have these teeth removed. Right. And um, I did. And it was after the um, teeth were removed that I noticed I had to chew differently. I had to move my mouth differently because I was missing some molars back there. Okay, I, I you know, that's not a big deal, it's interesting. But um, over time, it, it just felt odd. But okay, fine, I'm missing some back molars, okay. Then, boom, my neck began hurting one day. Got out of bed. It was very painful. And, you know, I still had ME. It was still there. I had learned how to pace in an extreme manner. So I was no longer very severe. I was probably moderate severe. I kind of, you know, paced my way out of severe. And um, my neck was hurting. And it was hurting. And I was getting headaches. And then I started to notice that my head literally felt like it was sinking down. Like like it was sinking down in between my shoulders. That that doesn't happen, right? That, how could that possibly be happening? But that was happening. And um, I started having problems breathing when I was upright. Like I've just been upright. And um, I just, breathing was difficult. And um, it felt like the opposite of winning the lottery twice. Like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it was, um, yeah, it, it felt like a very sad situation. I had already had Emmy, and now I have this completely new, what I thought was a completely new severe problem. Okay. And I went to the ER several times, and I was treated
1: horribly. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I just wanted, because I there was a quote from your website that I thought was very powerful. Well, reluctantly, I decided to go to the ER. Why were you reluctant? I had gone to my
0: local ER before for severe ME, where I was having a hard time moving where I could barely speak and they were horrible to me. I had also gone to the ER when I was having mast cell issues, which I didn't really go into on the website. But I also had mast cell problems and they were horrible to me. They really saw me as a frequent flyer who comes in with these symptoms that they can't identify a cause for, and they just took it to mean that I had a bunch of psychological issues, and that I was using their ER to get attention and to deal with my psych issues. They, with anxiety. Right. they labeled me with anxiety. And there were times when I would, there was one time when I was having really severe symptoms, mass cell symptoms, and my ER literally physically rejected me.
1: Um, Kicked you out of the emergency. I'm sorry? They kicked you out of emergency. They did, with security.
0: Wow. I was not being belligerent or anything. I mean, it it was a, oh, no, it's him, get him out. You know, and I was having severe chest pain from a mast cell reaction, and I was red and splotchy, but that, that is how they dealt with me. And so you can see, once I started having... The, the neck problems and the difficulty breathing. I, we, I have three local ERs, and I essentially exhausted them by the time the, the neck problem was happening. But I had to go somewhere, so we went to our local one, which didn't work. Then we went to Stanford, which didn't work. Um, we went to University of California, San Francisco ER. All one night, which didn't work, and we did this all in one night, because I was very severe. At our, at our local location, I did get a neck, I, I asked for a cervical collar, and then they gave it to me. What a very nice resident. I told him, when I pull up on my head, I can breathe. When I let go, it sinks down. Can I have a collar? And he gave one to me. That was helpful. But that's essentially all I can get.
1: Okay, so you got the collar. And then what happens? You're back home. I got the caller and
0: I realized, yes, this is, okay, good. The collar is helping me breathe so I don't have to physically hold my head up. Um, good. So this will tie me over until I can actually get some more help. Um, and trying to get some more help was not working in California. Okay. I would. I had a bunch of journal articles detailing every symptom I had, perfectly explaining the entire problem, accounting for everything, including the fact that my heart rate was dipping into the thirties while I was sleeping, including my breathing problems, every every new problem, the neck pain, the head pain, the sinking sensation. Everything was accounted for in these articles,
1: academic journal articles. And, and what were these journal articles about? <coughs> I'm sorry? What were the journal articles about? They were about
0: cervical instability, and, and that is what I had. Um, they described how hypermobility in the cervical junction and, and between the first and the second vertebrae um, can cause everything I was experiencing, every single symptom. It was actually really comforting in the same way that the ME diagnosis fit me so perfectly. It was very, very, very perfect in terms of how well it fit. So I brought those journal articles on craniosacervical instability with me to Stanford, and the doctors there were not going to listen. They were offended that I had my own idea about what I might have. They told me that everything I was experiencing was normal and that it would go away on its own. I went to UCSF. I told them that I had been diagnosed with... POTS, ME, and mast cell, and now I'm having cranio-cervical instability symptoms, and these conditions tend to cluster together, especially POTS, mast cell, and cranio-cervical instability. I knew this at the time from Art. And the doctors at UCSF told me that that is not the case. So I handed him the journal article saying it was the case. And he looked at the journal article and said, no, this is not true. Now, this is a very recent academic journal article, and he just, Blew it off, as though, as though it didn't mean anything. But not showing sure the MRIs, yeah. Also, Stanford, UCSF, all all these hospitals in California, would get give me MRIs because they were saying, okay, so you're saying something's wrong. Let's we'll at least do some imaging, and my MRIs were read as normal. And what I knew at the time from reading enough was that. You, in order to find instability at the cranio-cervical junction, you, number one, it's usually a very specific type of MRI that you need. Number two, it all it needs to be read by a neurosurgeon who is well-versed in these conditions, and those are so few. So I knew that the MRIs likely weren't going to lead anywhere, and I was trying to get transferred to a neurosurgeon
1: who does specialize in this problem okay so you're at home at this point or is this where you've been admitted to the hospital i still was not admitted yet i was still able to sit up and walk provided that i had my cervical
0: collar and so we're basically traveling the state of california going to the best hospitals and these hospitals are blowing me off telling me my mri's are normal and that you know i'm i'm probably anxious whatever the pivotal moment where i finally got invited to a hospital was at home. I took off my cervical collar because I was getting the beginnings of bed sores because I had been wearing it nonstop for I think probably six weeks or so. Took it off, put on a, a newer, weaker collar that would allow my neck to breathe. And within about 10 minutes of this weaker collar, I was sitting up in bed and suddenly just extreme dizziness hit me and I, I collapsed. And I thought, okay, well, I'll get back up. and. The same thing happened. So I thought, okay, it's this new weak collar that makes sense. Let me get my old collar back on. My partner came in and gave me my stronger collar. I put it on, tried to sit up. Okay, this should work. You know, finally, I'm going to be able to sit up again. Oh, no. Um, something was not working. Something had fundamentally changed. And we waited about 20 hours um i would try to sit up and the same thing happened even with my very strong collar i just could not sit up my cranial cervical instability had become too severe
1: do you think that wearing that uh, that stronger collar for that period of time further laxed your tendons or joints that is
0: like Something, a really good question, I think. I, I, I like that question. I, I've thought about that too, and I've talked to neurosurgeons about that question. What, what I've been told by the neurosurgeons who specialize in this is that the more you wear a collar, the weaker your muscles will become. But if you are already so unstable that you would have to be in a collar to function, then it's a catch 22, right? Um, so I was pretty much in a situation where I was a sur- I needed surgery. By the time I couldn't live without the collar, I was essentially needing surgery, and it probably didn't. I wasn't really making myself worse by wearing the collar. Yes, I was weakening my neck muscles, but my laxity was already severe enough that I had been unable to function even before I started wearing the collar. And I'd like to say something here. Um, I think that this craniocervical instability symptom, you know, all those symptoms that let me realize something was wrong with my head and my neck, that was just a natural extension of my ME. I think that this craniocervical problem had caused my ME from the very beginning. I simply progressed along with CCI to the point that I realized I had a problem with my skull and my neck. Back when I was having the skull and neck problem, I didn't relate it to my ending. I thought it was a new separate thing. But then once we corrected my cervical instability, my ending was gone. And so my own thinking is that my ending was all along this problem. This problem simply became severe enough that I realized I had this.
1: Um, So you have the CCI since childhood related back to the tether cord think I had the CCI, I, I know I had a tethered cord my whole life, but it was,
0: I had no symptoms of tethered cord um, from the time I was four years old onward until my late 20s, Okay. and then I began having tethered cord symptoms, which are weak legs, frequent urination, general fatigue, then I developed POTS, and POTS is essentially brainstem compression is what was causing my POTS. So when you've a tethered cord, it pulls down on your craniocervical junction, straining your brainstem and straining up here. Your spinal cord is literally pulling down. And your ligaments, have and your ligaments up here, which are trying to keep your head in the right place, loosen and weaken with all that tension as part of, as part of from your tethered cord. And all of this is related to elders. Tether Tethered cord is related to elders. Your ligaments just becoming too lax related to ehlers
1: so how does the getting that viral infection, that thing that triggered all of this, how does that fit into this puzzle?
0: There are two possible ways it would fit into the puzzle. Okay. One of them is it has been shown through research that viruses degrade collagen and your ligaments are made up of collagen. So if you have a virus, you can assume that your collagen might be degrading but then, why some people end up with, you know, me, and others don't? Well, let's say you have Ehlers-Danlos, whether you know it or it's, you don't know it at all. Your collagen is already vulnerable. Your ligaments already don't function. It's not as strong. It's, it's not as it's not normal ligaments. So if you get a viral infection, your ligaments will degrade as anybody else. But if you have Ehlers-Danlos, you're more vulnerable. Vulnerable. Yeah. <clears throat> the viral onset could potentially be that the virus degrades your collagen enough that in combination with a tethered cord, you know, then you have the viral insult to your collagen and it's just too much. Another way. Okay, so the second way, yeah. The second way is, it could have been that I already had a structural problem and I got a virus and the structural problem was severe enough at that point that i could not fight off the virus normally so in other words when you think about how your autonomic system and your immune system work together if you're starting to have the beginnings of autonomic nervous system problem with brainstem compression it stands to reason that your body cannot fight off the virus in a normal way because you're already having some autonomic system dysfunction that is impairing your immune system. So oh. those are the two ways that a viral onset might factor into the overall picture. Wow, and like who would have guessed that? No I, I Yeah, right, <laughs> it wasn't until I got lucky enough to realize I had a problem with this area that I was able to think about it in that new way. If I hadn't had those teeth out, I don't think I ever could have. <laughs> come to this point thought about it in this way I had to have my head become very loose in order to
1: do this. Right. So So you're at home uh, you switch those collars up and you switch them back and it, you don't oh, get the any for oh. the, oh, the, the neck brace so, oh, the neck. so now you have to go to emergency again Yes, I had to go again,
0: and then this time I couldn't even sit
1: up in a car,
0: so we went by ambulance. got admitted to my local hospital, who were always, they were hostile toward me. They, they didn't believe it was wrong, so that didn't change this time, even though I couldn't even sit up this time. Even though I was in a cervical collar this time, they were my local hospital, and Dr. Kaufman, advocated for me with my attendant at the local hospital, and they finally admitted me with my family and Dr. Cobb really pushing to get me admitted long story short. But once I was admitted, there was no real help. They they did an MRI, and as expected, based on what I knew, um, the MRI wasn't the type that is designed to measure creative cervical instability. Number two, there are very few cci experts and they were not in california so i was thinking about how this mri wasn't going to help i knew that as i was in the mri machine i knew how this was going to play out i had to live through it and somehow get through it and what i wanted was to be transferred to a hospital
1: where they have cci literate neurosurgeons and i wanted to at that one i knew what i needed so you were in the hospital, you knew what you needed, you had done the research. Yes. Yes, and, and so
0: this hospital wouldn't even have a neurosurgeon visit me. They just sent the PAs to tell me that nothing was wrong with me and that, I was, that, that every symptom I told them was not matching the imaging they had and that I needed to leave. And I was treated as essentially a malingerer. Um, but my family finally... Put enough pressure on the administration of the hospital that a neurosurgeon was coerced into seeing me in Person, um, He came in he looked at my imaging and said well it's not exactly normal but there's nothing would account for your symptoms. You have a little bit of abnormalities but it, it does explain your symptoms. So my partner handed him, handed this neurosurgeon the peer-reviewed research articles talking about CCI. We finally had the neurosurgeon in our presence he handed him the peer-reviewed articles. He looked at the titles. My, my partner said, well, with Eller's Domino Syndrome, there are some issues here. The neurosurgeon takes those peer-reviewed articles and goes, I've already read these, and hands them right back. Now, it was clear that that was a lie. This neurosurgeon didn't know anything about Eller's danlos He did not know about CCI. He was offended to the point where he lied about having already read these articles that he hadn't read. And it was a very. There was, there was clearly maybe an arrogance factor, and a, and a factor where, since he didn't understand what was going on, he was going to tell me that nothing was wrong. Because, after all, if something was wrong, he would, of course, understand it, right?
1: <laughs> okay, so here you are, so sick, so disabled, so vulnerable and it feels like you've been betrayed repeatedly by the healthcare system. And it sounds like you would be or should be traumatized. I was very
0: traumatized. I I knew that the only way I could get through this was to fight. And there was demoralization, you know, that there was... um, a lot of, just how does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? Why are they so awful to me? Why don't they believe me? And I know this is what we, people with complex chronic illness go through. This this is our world. It's it's a constant trauma. And um, the sicker I became, the more I needed medical help, I couldn't avoid it, and it, it, it really feels like your humanity is, is off the table. You're suddenly everybody's problem. And they are very, very hostile about it. I mean, if if a doctor can't figure you out, then you are the problem. That That is how we're treated. And to be treated that way over and over at your worst when you can't even sit up. I was vomiting. I was, I was dizzy. I was, you know, it, it, it's, it's a type of... Um, abuse like like systemic medical abuse
1: yeah the uh the way folks with ME and other complex diseases are treated is systemic iotrogenic harm yes sustained by the system yes so here you are in the hospital and something like four or five months go by where you're flat on your back with your feet elevated a bit because that's a little bit more comfortable and yes, you're still being was, essentially abused by the hospital yes
0: i i was three weeks at my local hospital in that position flat on my back in my collar feet up head down and that taking some pressure off my brain stem um After three weeks at the local hospital, Dr. Kaufman advocated for me, so I got transferred to a hospital in Southern California that is considered very, very, very good. It was at that hospital that the abuse escalated and was something I couldn't have actually imagined. Um, And it was at that hospital I was there for four months. After having spent three weeks at my local one, I spent four months at this world-renowned hospital in Southern California,
1: so total of four weeks, I'm sorry, four months and three weeks. So when you Bye. say the abuse at this other world-renowned hospital took place, what some examples of that? The name of it? Or, or are the examples of the abuse you endured? Oh, oh.
0: Um, can I take a moment to have a glass of water?
1: Absolutely. Oh, and if it's okay. too difficult. we. Yeah, it is somehow. It's- so, Jeff, if it's too difficult, I don't want to re-traumatize you by having to... It's not. I, I'm really glad to be able to tell this, so okay. I'll tell it. Okay. Thank you for understanding how
0: it's it's pretty, pretty heavy. Well, I got transferred to that hospital, and... Um, the care of neurosurgeons, the nurses were generally very, very kind. It was the doctors that that were very abusive. Some examples. Um, So I got admitted there, and they decided to do imaging, standard MRI imaging, and they did not find any instability. Then they decided, well, because you're having dizziness and all these other symptoms, maybe you have a CSF leak cerebral spinal fluid leak but I had clear instability symptoms there's some overlap but they decided to patch me for a leak in case I had one yeah and um, that didn't when that didn't fix my symptoms they became hostile Um, the neurosurgeon who was supposed to evaluate me for CCI (coughs) came in and and at one point, she said, I'm going to discharge you. You're completely fine. There is nothing abnormal on your imaging. And I said, you know, but all I can do, all I'm capable of is lying down in this position. And she said, so what's the difference? If I send you home, all you're going to do is lie right all day anyway. And at another point, she said, you need to get up out of that bed, take that neck brace off, go home and accept that nothing is wrong with you. You need to accept it. And she would come into my hospital bed where I'd been lying for months and say, "You know, you need to get up. Nothing is wrong." Very, very stern. Very, made it very clear. She said, "You know, working on your case is a waste of my time. If you're, you know, I, I've evaluated you. I've done everything I can, and now you are wasting my time." Also, she had residents working there. That were one of the residents came in and said, look, I have a job, okay, basically implying that I was lazy and lying around. Um, the My attending physician would send in physical therapists to tell me to get up, tell me to get up. I would try to get up. I would have profound dizziness. I would have numbness in my arms and legs. I mean, I had horrible symptoms. I would vomit because of vertigo. And... He kept saying it. And and there were two residents at this hospital that understood that I was really ill. They were, they told me, I feel for you. I am under the control of my attendings. There is nothing I can do for you, but human to human, I want you to know that you, that I see this, I see what is happening, human to human. The residents were clearly powerless. Um, And I was starting to worry that, you know, when you lie around, you can get blood clots. You can get all kinds of problems. And um, I, the neurosurgeons would come in and berate me and, and, and say, you know, you're by lying around, you could get blood clots. You're at risk of pneumonia. You're at risk of sudden death by lying around like this. And, well, then fix me, right? Then transfer me. And so I was asking, can you please transfer me? to the East Coast, where they have these neurosurgeons that deal with the problem I have. They would say, you don't have the problem you think you have. Get up, get out. And then they started trying to send me to a nursing home um, to rot. And and nursing homes aren't as clean as hospitals. They, you know, it it would have been really, really hard to just be placed in a home. Um, You know, and, and so, you know, with uh yeah, so we'll try to actually okay, this is this is what happened while I was lying in the hospital bed. I had a consult with one of the CCI literate neurosurgeons on the East Coast. He does Skype consults. We had a Skype appointment and I showed him my imaging that I had done prior to collapsing and being hospitalized. He found it, he found CCI. He diagnosed me with CCI while I was in my hospital bed, flat on my back if my caller legs up at this hospital in California, he and I were conversing on a video conference and he diagnosed me with the problem I knew I had and he said he would accept me and transfer. Great, so the neurosurgeons at the hospital who was being hostile to me wouldn't put in the word to transfer me. They blocked it, from, they could have called my insurance company and said this is necessary, this is medically necessary, transfer, transfer this guy. A neurosurgeon had already accepted me. They refused to do that. So they forced me to lie there as they as they told me I was lazy, as they told me I was lingering, as they pointed out that they had jobs and I didn't, and they refused to um, do anything on my behalf other than torture me, essentially, and, try, and they threatened me with financial ruin they said, if you don't go to a nursing home, you're going to owe us nearly a million dollars. Like, it was, that's that's what it was. Um, And I couldn't even set up to eat. I I was eating on my side. I couldn't, you know, you're just kind of completely helpless. Oh, and they, they were doing this, They had done this to another person. The same neurosurgeon, the same hospital. A girl had CCI, she's about, I think she was about 20. They did this to her the year before. this is not an isolated incident there. And I I didn't even know this was possible. I, I didn't know it was possible. I had been mistreated really, really badly. My doctors, you know, for all my years of being of having a complex chronic illness, it didn't prepare me for for this. It, it was a, it was a new level of escalation of abuse, of just overall mistreatment, and, and um, I can only imagine how many people go through this and don't have the opportunity to tell their stories.
1: it, it is so shocking. It's like almost unbelievable except it's what happened to you yeah yeah Ah, so here they are they're they're blocking you from being transferred to the neurosurgeon how do you get around that
0: I we had to we had to just I am so fortunate that I have a family who could help me transfer health insurance to a an insurance company that would accept me from out of state. Essentially, I had enough resources to be able to get on a health insurance plan where I didn't require a transfer anymore. But that took months to change health insurance. It took effort to be able to get on a new insurance plan. It's not like you just sign up and pay. We had to go through a lot of legal work to to get me on a plan where I could go out of state. And not everybody will even have that option at all. I was incredibly fortunate that I had that option available to me and that we knew how to access it. We had to hire an attorney just to help me not get shipped to a nursing home while I was at that hospital. We, My you know, my family, the attorney said that I had to have somebody in the hospital with me at all times because sometimes hospitals will just ship you to a home if nobody's watching, and um, Fortunately, no homes were accepting me. But I was so mistreated that when I was alone, the mistreatment was far worse than if my family was there. And so my family, my dad had to take family medical leave of absence through his job. He had to work from our hospital at some points. My mom had to drive, you know, my partner. I mean, everybody was around the clock with me at some point because the abuse had gotten so severe and our attorney recommended that somebody be with me at all times, get in the situation.
1: Wow, how incredibly frightening. Like, just for a healthy person to have to go through that, it's frightening. And to be so severely ill, it's just just horrible. Beyond words. Yeah, it feels
0: like you're at your worst and that's when they come and attack you. When you're at your worst and they tell you you're completely healthy as they, uh, as they do this I, it's almost hard to believe like, it's not something that I could have really understood
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's just outside the realm of possibility out of imagination out of our experiences with the healthcare system when we have regular routine illnesses yes, yes I broke my arm when I was 14 and the
0: doctor was nice the doctor ran imaging right away they found the problem that day, they assured me they could fix it. They put me in a cast, and I was fixed. That was a completely different face of a doctor. It was, it was just a, it's like a different
1: world. It is, it is. There's like two systems, two healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. One for the routine, easy to fix, easy to spot stuff. And then the rest of it's a, pretty much a shit show. So you finally managed to get transferred to the East Coast to this neurosurgeon. Well, finally what happened was this hostile
0: hospital in Southern California called in the director of their spine center to get me out of there. And he ran, he ran tests and he found the instability on his tests. And they put me in a halo and got me out of their hospital. Um, and I had
1: actually been asking for a halo since the day I collapsed. Since before I even collapsed, I knew I needed a halo. Um, Jennifer, and when you say halo, that's different than the collar. What's a halo? Yes. Uh, uh, Halo is a
0: medical device where they actually screw four screws into your skull. Here, here, and then in the back. Two in the back, two in the front. It looks like a cage. I have a photo of it up on my website. I can show people. Um, and it's just a bunch of bars holding your head in place. And where a vest, the bar's attach to the vest and they attach to your head. And it keeps your head from moving. It kept my head elevated so it wasn't sinking and compressing my brain um, The halo was wonderful for tidying me over until I could get surgery. I knew I needed a halo months before I got a halo, and I had tried asking for a halo, and I was looked at as, why do you, a healthy person, want a cage on your head and screws on your skull? It essentially, because they thought I was mentally ill already, they thought I was physically healthy already. When I tried to ask for a halo, it reinforced their perception of me as, as um, yeah, it, it, it did not work. Um, asking for what I needed, which I very much did need, it, it did not. There was no way I could advocate for myself and have it benefit
1: me. I had to have a doctor have the idea, and then suddenly I get one. And that's a valid idea. So I, I I know how difficult it is to sleep with me. Um, I could imagine how difficult it is to sleep with a collar on, but that's a whole different level of uncomfortableness having a halo on. How do you sleep with that? You know, the first week was
0: hard. The first week was um, difficult. Eventually, I adapted, and I could put... I could sort of squeeze a pillow between two bars, and it was like sleeping on a pillow. Yeah, and, and so the halo, because I had been bed-bound in a collar for months, in a hospital bed, the time I got the halo, yes, it was uncomfortable, but it gave me freedom, and it felt awesome. Like, yeah, okay, I have, <laughs> I have screws in my skull, I have all these bars, but I can stand up. Like, that was huge. I had to sit up for almost five months and the halo felt like freedom. It looked like a horrible cage, but it actually was a wonderful
1: thing. So five months of not really standing up, how how were your legs at that point? They were like toothpicks. They were so atrophied.
0: Um, I all those months I was lying in hospital that I couldn't even sit up, and so, let alone stand. And so by the time I was able to be upright with the halo, sitting up was hard. Standing was incredibly hard. Um, but all those months I had been doing exercises. I'd been flexing my legs and asking for PT to come keep me strong as I lay there and So, But even then, I mean, my legs were too fixed, even having exercise during that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh- Uh, So now you're in the halo and you're waiting for surgery. Yes, I'm waiting for surgery. And
0: we had to do some insurance paperwork while I was in the halo waiting for surgery. We weren't sure I was even going to be able to um, get insurance coverage for the surgery that I needed. Um, But the halo is what got
1: me out of the hospital and upright. Okay. So then you have the surgery, and when did you have the surgery, just to put us into the timeline? January January 31st, 2018. Uh, So you had the surgery, and what happened in the days after that? And and what was the surgery itself? What did they do? They
0: drill holes into your skull and into your first vertebrae and into your second vertebrae, and they take rods and they... Drew those rods in there and they put a bone graft in there. And it essentially keeps that area stable. Because what I had was hypermobility. I also had cranial settling. Because of the hypermobile ligaments, my head was sinking down. The ligaments weren't keeping it at the right height. You wouldn't have known from looking at me. It's not something you can see with the eye. But that was what was causing my pause. So they put the rods and the screws in there. They, they also lift your skull. your during the surgery, which was seven and a half hours, and so they open you up, drill, put in some bone grafts, so you so you close, and then you wake up, and they that hospital's very good with pain control. I was not in pain when I woke up. I had a lot of pain medication. Um, you know, I, I I had a really big gash, gaping, you know, great, soaked up wound, but you know, compared to before the surgery, I mean, compared to severe ME, this is not a big deal. This was like a cough, it was like a hiccup compared to years of ME. Um, so I don't consider it to have been difficult. The surgery was easy compared to living with severe ME for years. You know, you have painkillers, you have you make progress. When, when, when my structural problem was corrected, I could, I no longer have POTS, I no longer had post-exertion delays. I could work on strengthening my legs that had atrophied for all those months. I could suddenly be healthy in terms of energy, autonomic nervous system. My viral titers normalized. My Epstein Barr IgM normalized. I my urination problem. When I got put in that halo, it mimics the surgery. So it it essentially mimics what the surgery will do for you. Although I do have range of motion after surgery in the halo you don't. But the halo showed me what the surgery would do. And that was take away my POTS and take away my post-exertional malaise, took away my light sensitivity, my sound sensitivity, my brain fog was gone. It was too much. I I couldn't believe it at first. I, it was like, okay, this is nice, but I'm going to crash, right? I, right? <laughs> I can't get too comfortable. I, this is too good to be true. You know, I, I don't get your hopes up. I, for all the years of envy, I, I had to... I would get my hopes up sometimes. I, I had a bit of improvement. And I, I. And over time, I learned to never dwell in that hope because it would become dashed. So in the halo, after surgery, it took a while for me to relax into realizing... I don't have POTS, I don't have PEM, I don't have brain fog, I don't have ME anymore. Because I had my neurosurgery. I don't have ME. That shocked. Wow. And it took months to understand and accept.
1: So are you the first person to link ME and CCI? That I know of. I I had never seen anybody else link this
0: before. I assume somewhere on the planet somebody has linked it, but they haven't been vocal. I don't know of anybody. So when I linked this, I thought it was huge. I was really, really, really wanting to tell every single human with me, because I would have wanted to know years ago, and here I am, made this connections, and everybody suddenly, I want to tell you. Um, so so yeah. I. I went on Phoenix Rising and explained everything um, and I just tried to spread this as far as I could.
1: And Phoenix Rising is a forum where a lot of patients with ME go to discuss and support each other and stuff. Yes. So. It almost seems like there's been an epidemic of CCI interest and diagnosis. I know, just as I was saying earlier, um, just in the last 24 hours, I found out more people. There's the woman in Toronto whose son has uh, some sort of neck thing going on. She's trying to get a diagnosis. But she had heard from Dr. Peter Rowe that three of his ME patients were also diagnosed with CCI. Some of them have, uh, Peter Rowe published a paper where uh, three people with classic Emmy symptoms were
0: found to have cervical instability, and they, they had uh, cervical fusion surgery, and their Emmy went away. This happened after I had my surgery. I, I didn't read the, This publication was literally published after I had had my halo <laughs> surgery. So so yes, they, and, and now, ever since I shared my story on Fink's Rising, every month, Sometimes several times a week, people have been telling me I just got evaluated or they're posting their stories publicly on Fix Rising that they have gotten evaluated and they do have CCI. I think we're up to 10 people now, including Jen Brea. And Jen Brea told my story in her story. She talked about um, how on Fix Rising, I had essentially been shouting this from the rooftops and now more and more people are getting tested and diagnosed with this. It's going to be very interesting to see how
1: they do after their surgeries through Kaufman. And Jen Brea, who is Jen Brea for the folks who've not heard of her?
0: Jen Brea
1: um, is the
0: producer and the star of the documentary film Unrest. And Unrest, I think I believe it came out in 2017, so fairly recently. And Jen documents her life with Emmy. And she also brings in other people with Emmy. And it's essentially a documentary film. Um, it did win a Sundance Award and um she really helps people see this illness in an up-close personal way that most people would never understand without seeing it and and so she really did a lot for awareness of in that film um and and jen jen's film has given jen a platform to now share her cci story and she's shared my cci story and um, as as a result of what she read about my story on Things Rising, you know, she contacted me and, and we have been in discussion about all of this. Um and like I
1: said, I think this past week, two people from Prince Rising have told me they were diagnosed with CCI. Wow! Just in week, yeah. And I also had another email this morning from a friend of mine uh, who lives on the east coast of Canada, and her daughter-in-law, who was diagnosed with ME by Dr. Chetta, just this week, found out she has CCI. Oh yes.
0: Now, Dr. Chetta is Dr. Kaufman's partner. Yeah. And at at their um, Center for Complex Diseases in California. I brought the CCI literature to Dr. Kaufman in 2017, and he had not heard of it. Really, he did not, it was new. Um, And I said, I think I have this. He said, I don't know. I said, I think I do, here's why. I brought him the peer-reviewed articles, and I asked him for an MRI. I, I learned what kind of MRI was needed, and I asked him to write the order, and he did. Then Dr. Kaufman saw my story. He advocated for me while the neurosurgeon were being hostile, I was reporting everything to him. I told him about the neurosurgeons that are literate in this and I think I was patient zero at the Center for Complex Diseases. I figured out my problem. I showed Dr. Kaufman that I had figured out my problem and he ran with it and that is rare. Most doctors would not have taken me seriously. I figured out my problem. Yes, I did, and he believed me, and he ran with what I had figured out. The arrogance factor is normally way too strong for a doctor to behave that way, but Dr. Kaufman wants to solve a puzzle, and he wants to help his patients. If, an, if, if information comes from a patient, he will take it as, as valid. It came from peer-reviewed articles. It wasn't, you know, I, I so at any rate, I, I was a patient zero at the Center for Complex Diseases when I brought to research the research to Dr. Kaufman, and he ran with it, and he is now observing well, never mind. I was going to say, he's actually observing my neurosurgeon doing this surgery on other patients. He's now referring people to my neurosurgeon, and he, and he brought Dr. Cheta in. Now, now the Center for Complex Diseases knows about CCI. Um, this is all new. <laughs> so, And it's taking off.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Your story, Jeff, is absolutely incredible on so many levels. And I know it's not finished yet because you're really just starting into this new phase. It sounds like this whole advocacy and creating awareness phase. Yes, I I decided that you know I was gonna that I was gonna tell my story,
0: and I wrote it up. And I haven't publicly disclosed my tether cord surgery, which I had six months after my CCI surgery. And and yes, I. Once I realized that, it, that my Emmy was caused by structural problems, I had to tell people. Because how many other people have the same cause with their Emmy? My suspicion is a lot, if not the majority. That is my suspicion. Time will tell. But I knew I had to get this out there. And if I didn't push, it wasn't going to get out. I mean, it would trickle. So you can push and try to... I wanted to hurry things along because I know that sometimes things take a while in medicine. And I think that when patients come together and share information, we can push the system to evaluate us. We can sort of make the system do what we need it to do. If we raise awareness.
1: So you're embarking on this new advocacy awareness path um, yeah. And you've got a website yeah. set up, and you're on Twitter. Uh, what other plans does this entail?
0: I have my um, my website, mechanicalbasis.org, and, and my Twitter account, which is all about the mechanical basis of ME and, and helping people gather resources and talk about uh, getting a for CCI. Um, I am also going to build a... Um, facebook page where we can actually have a community of people to discuss this on a facebook page because not everybody's on twitter um i'm wanting to partner with mds and organizations and i have some contacts that will start incorporating cci into an awareness of ME. in other words when somebody has ME, you, you rule out a thyroid problem you rule out sleep disorders you rule out cancers Why not rule out CCI immediately as well? Because what if this is it? And and if this is it, it is fixable. And so with my advocacy, I want to shout this from the rooftops at patients, at MDs, organizations, and actually structurally integrate this knowledge into the conception of ME and into the evaluation of ME. Wow, that's
1: so awesome, Jeff. Thank you. I mean, what? It's just unbelievable how sick you were, how horribly treated you were by the healthcare system, how frequently you came to, you know, just having a wasted life of being shoved into a nursing home. Um, there's just so many ways it could have been a permanent life of disability for you um and to think that the reason it's not is because of what you did your grit and determination through all of that and that is a phenomenal story thank you i
0: i appreciate
1: hearing
0: that i think that as i was repeatedly mistreated i got angry and i think Sometimes anger and curiosity combined can propel you when you can't really leave your bed. You have drive. I, I don't know what to say, but I appreciate everything that you just said.
1: So it's been 10 months since your surgery. Yes. How, how much toward 100% recovered are you, and do you think you'll be 100%? I do think I
0: will be 100%. Um, I got, like we said, my CCI surgery was in January 2018. My tethered cord surgery was July 31st, 2018. So I've actually had two neurosurgeries this year. I'm not even four months post op the tether cord. Um, what I am finding is don't have POTS, don't have post exertional legs, but I do have, from years of being bedridden, Followed by just five months flat on my back and then four months in a halo. I have extreme muscle atrophy. I also have hypermobility throughout, and I'm going to need to strengthen with physical therapy my muscles in order to get full functionality in terms of being fully capable. It's going to take some time. Stuck weeks. When you have the degree of atrophy that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, week. And how are you feeling about your progress? I'm amazed. I, I never thought I would get better. I spent years trying to come to terms with the fact that I would never get better. As I tried to figure out a solution, I also tried to, to prepare myself for a life of disability. And the fact that I just don't even, I, I'm not like, I, I, can, I can be fine. It's, it, it, it almost doesn't feel real sometimes. You know, being that sick is still in the near past. It's not the distant past anymore. That is That was my life very, very recently. And it's clear that, that that is not what my future will be. And that is not what my present is. And, and it's, I'm adjusting. It's like waking up from being in confinement. You don't fully understand that you're free at first. And you keep, I, I, I you know, instinctively, sometimes I will start pacing just because I trained myself to do that for years. and And it's really, really nice to not have to live like
1: that. So it sounds like you expect to get back to going to the gym, going for a run. Yes. Another, no,
0: definitely. And another component that I don't think I mentioned was uh, I had mast cell problems that developed over the course of my enemy. Those went away with my surgery. So from what I have seen in my own case, my mast cell activation and my POTS were all neurological and neurological by fixing the neurological problem, those are going away. So I don't have, so like you were saying, I can go back to the gym, I can go for a run. Once I build up my muscles enough, yes. I can also be around my cats. I can also handle dust. I used to have to wear masks with mast cell on top of ME. Um, it's, And I've noticed that mast cell, POTS, and ME often occur
1: together. Anyway, I'm I'm on a tangent, so I will get off the tangent. Yes, it's very complex. There's a lot of things going on with ME. It's not just a single system that's messed up. It's multiple systems. I really got to say, Jeff, uh, your story is just so incredible. It's uh, an honor to speak with you and uh, to be able to help get your message out there. I really feel privileged to do that. So thank you so much. I thank you so
0: much. I I, I so appreciate the invite. Um, wonderful talking to you and uh yeah we'll see where this goes yeah i we're done i I think that there's a lot more is going to happen
1: thank you absolutely for For sure and i I look forward to like following up with you and you know following your journey maybe we'll check in again in a couple of months and see how you're doing and where you're at with all of that stuff i'd love to sounds great wow uh Big thanks to Jeff Wood for sharing his healthcare hell journey so others suspecting they may have similar symptoms can start to investigate, and for bringing to light the institutionalized medical abuse of people living with complex chronic illnesses. With the way Jeff was repeatedly dismissed and denigrated, it's a wonder he's not another medical error death but it is no wonder how medical error is the third leading cause of death. If Jeff's story triggered you emotionally, seek safe support. If you need a counselor, you can book an online video appointment with me at remediescounseling.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and become a podcast patron at patreon slash Interviews. And finally... Be kind to others and do something nice for yourself today.